thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. This morning we're going to be starting to look at the second missionary journey that Luke records for us here in the book of Acts. And um, here is a map of all the missionary journeys that uh, Luke records for us. And you'll notice as you look at them, we also have the journey to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. But each missionary journey gets longer. The first one there uh, in kind of the purple, you notice that was the shortest one. The second's a little longer than the first, and the third uh, is even longer than the second. But something else interesting to note is that Luke gives us more information in the book of Acts uh, with each missionary journey. The first missionary journey has two chapters that we looked at dedicated to it. And now as we start the second missionary journey, there's four chapters dedicated to telling us about that, and then the third missionary journey has six chapters uh, of the book of Acts focused on it. And so as we start looking at this second missionary journey this morning, there's going to be five main things that I want to draw your attention to, five main things that we're going to be looking at that are definitely uh, applicable uh, to our lives. And so let's start by seeing how this second missionary journey gets started. We left off in Uh, chapter 15, verse 35, and we start this morning in verse 36. Notice what it says. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So now Paul and Barnabas, they went on their first missionary journey. They came back. They shared everything with the church in Antioch. We saw last week they went down to Jerusalem. We had the Jerusalem Council. These different things have transpired. And now they're back in Antioch, back with their home church. And Paul says, you know what? Hey, why don't we go to all the cities that we went to on our first missionary journey so that we can encourage the people that are believers in those places? You know, I think it's something to note that Paul and Barnabas, not only did they have the heart of an evangelist as we see them going out to new places to share the gospel to people who've never heard about Jesus, but they also had the heart of a pastor. They want to go back to these places where there already are believers, where they planted these churches, and they want to go encourage them. They want to go see how these believers are doing. And so this is a great plan. This is a great heart. They want to go out. They want to do this second missionary journey, but a problem arises. Let's see what transpires. Right before they're about to go on this second missionary journey, we have an issue that happens. Verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Barnabas and Saul, they're, Paul, they're, they're getting ready for this second missionary journey. And here's the problem. Barnabas whose cousin is Mark, he says, let's take Mark with us on this second missionary journey. He's very determined that that would happen, but we're told that Paul insisted that we would not take with them the one who departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them 
to the work. If you remember back in Acts chapter 13, right in the middle of the first missionary journey, Mark abandons Paul and Barnabas and goes back to Jerusalem. And so Barnabas is saying, hey, let's take this guy with us on the second missionary journey. And Paul says, no, I'm not taking this guy. We're going to get halfway through it and he's going to leave just like he did the first time. And so there's this contention there. Barnabas wants to take Mark. Paul doesn't want to take Mark. And and so Paul's determined. uh, Barnabas is determined. And notice it becomes quite a big issue. Verse 39 tells us, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Here's a huge point here in the book of Acts. We see Barnabas and we see Paul and this contention is so big that they say, you know what, we're not even going to minister anymore together. We're going to part and we're going to go do ministry in different places and in different uh, ways. And, And I want you to note here, Luke doesn't give us a clue of who's right and who's wrong between Paul and Barnabas and the sharp contention. But I'm going to say this. I believe whenever there's personal disputes that flare up among believers, both parties are usually have some blame to bring. I personally believe that both Paul and Barnabas have some sin uh, going on here because you don't get to a place where there's sharp contention and you're not willing to minister with one another even more. Uh, Both these guys aren't filled with the Holy Spirit walking in the Spirit right now. I can guarantee you that. And, you know, I'm not going to say it was just one or just the other because both are adamant about these things and I think both are probably in sin and you could probably look at both sides and say, well, you know, Barnabas is being loving and Paul's being too harsh or, or Paul's being realistic or whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, they weren't able to deal with this circumstance and this situation uh, in a loving, godly way. And I think there's two things that we see from this situation that I want to point out to you. The first is these great missionaries, these godly men, Paul and Barnabas, Notice this, they didn't always do what was right when it came to ministry. They weren't always perfect. They had sin, they had issues, they had contention with other believers. They split and didn't minister with that person any longer. We don't see Paul and Barnabas actually ministering anymore uh, throughout Scripture. And you know what, this is something that I want you to note. Even in the midst of all of that, God still greatly uses them. In their sin, in their struggles, in their failures, God still is able to use them. And this is a great encouragement to me. I hope it's an encouragement to you because I don't always do what's right in ministry. I have struggles. I have sins. I have contention with other believers just like Paul and Barnabas had. And you know what? I'm encouraged that God can still use me. I'm encouraged that he can still use you. You know, if God can only use people who always did what was right, guess what? God couldn't use anyone. Because no one always does what's right. No one is perfect except for Jesus. And this brings us to the first point I want to make this morning. God uses sinful people to do his ministry. God uses sinful people to do his ministry. You know, this should seem like, oh, that's an obvious point. But, you know, I think sometimes we fall into this lie that we have to be these perfect Christians for God to use us. Because we look at people in the Bible, and we look at the people that God used, and we kind of put them on this pedestal, and we oftentimes just focus on the greatness of them and their godliness and what God did through them, and we sometimes don't focus or we miss completely the fact that these people were sinful, just like you and I. And so we think, man, you know, I could never be used like so-and-so. Let me give you some examples of people in Scripture that we elevate, that we put on this pedestal that we think is so great, and sometimes we miss maybe another portion of their life that I think we should 
make sure that we don't uh, lose the balance there. You know, we think of Abraham, the great father of the Jewish faith. Here's a man who was so faithful, a man of faith to God, and oftentimes we look at him and we think at the end of his life he's willing to sacrifice his own son. Oh, I could never be like Abraham. I could never have that kind of faith. God could never use me like he uses him. But don't forget, at the very start of Abraham's life, he didn't start faithful. The very first thing God tells him to do is go to the promised land and only take your immediate family, and he responds in disobedience. He doesn't go to the promised land, and he takes Lot and his father-in-law with him. So, you know, he's not obedient right away. Then when he gets to the promised land, he doesn't stay. He leaves, and he goes down to Egypt. And he's down in Egypt. Pharaoh thinks, wow, your wife's hot. You know, I want to put her a part of my harem. And he says, she's my sister. And it happens twice. He lies about that, puts his wife in a very compromising situation. Uh, and then we find, you know, he's a little later on in life. God gives him a promise he's going to have a son. Years go by, years go by. You know what? Let's just help God out. I'm going to have sex with, you know, my wife's maid, and we're going to have a son that way. And so he does that. And we see the sin in Abraham's life. And we see it throughout his life. But yet, God was able to greatly use him. But we need to remember that balance. You know, Moses the great deliverer. And we think, man, what a great leader. What a man who put up with so much. And look what God did, all these miracles, the 10 plagues. You know, we focus on that, but we forget oftentimes, here's a man who started off very prideful. We thought, yeah, I'll take care of this all myself. And he goes and he kills and murders an Egyptian to do it. And then he gets cast out of Egypt. Forty years go by. God finally calls him to deliver the Israelites the way that God wants. And he starts making excuses. Oh, I can't speak right. I don't want to go. He's fearful. And then when we see him in the wilderness, he's got huge anger problems, which ultimately keep him out of the promised land. So once again, we see a man that God uses greatly, but yet struggled with sin. How about King David? I'm sure, you know, our kids in the Sunday school, it's like the, the go-to passage. Oh, I haven't prepared anything. Do David and Goliath, because that's the one. Everyone thinks of David, and they think of him conquering Goliath. And, you know, that's what we focused on. It is a great aspect of David's life. But let's not forget that he's also a murderer and an adulterer and a liar and a man who struggled with lust. I mean, he has some serious issues, and yet God was able to use him to do great things. One that we've been looking at more recently, Peter, the great apostle. Man, he walked on water. He preached a sermon and 3,000 people got saved. He did all these miracles. God could never use me like he uses Peter. Well, let's not forget that when he was walking on water, he got fearful and sunk. Let's not forget that he's also the one that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because the words that came in his mouth that preached the gospel were also words that he put his foot in his mouth all the time and said foolish things as well. Here's a man that denied Jesus three times. He had issues as well, but yet God God was able to use him. And we could spend the rest of our morning looking at people in the Bible because every single one that you're going to look at that God uses has sin, has issues, has problems. And I want you to remember God was able to use them. And the important part of that is he's able to use you. Don't look at people and think, well, I can never be used by God because I'm a sinful person. Well, everybody that God uses is. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want to change you and help you mature. But the reality is God uses sinful people to do his ministry. He uses Paul. He uses Barnabas. Even in their sin, even in their strong contention, even in their ministry split, but there's something else I want us to note about this that I'm even more encouraged by. Because you see a problem. This is a bad situation. Here is two guys who just had a great missionary journey. Now they're not willing to minister with one another. But notice that God, in this bad situation, is able to bring something good. And this is something that should encourage us. 
one of the ways that God brings good from this bad situation is now there's two ministry teams instead of one. There's now two missionary journeys going out to do two different places to reach two different groups of people when there only would have been one. And so God is able to take what is bad, this contention, this lack of being willing to minister with one another, and now he has Paul and Silas go minister, and now he has Barnabas and Mark go minister, and he's able to use this. But I also want us to note that the main person that brought all this contention was Mark. And the reason there was contention is because Mark abandoned them on the first missionary journey. Paul had issues with Mark, that's obvious. But you know what? Let's note something at the end of Mark's life, or Paul's life. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writing, he says this, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Paul came to a point in his life where he recognized, you know what, this man that I wasn't willing to go and minister with, now I see he's useful. God restored that relationship. God was able to bring good and bring things back together. And this brings us to the second point I want to make this morning. God can bring good out of bad situations. I hope this brings encouragement to you. God can bring good out of bad situations. One of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. This is so important for us as believers. This isn't a blanket statement for anyone. You have to love God and be called according to his purpose. So this is for believers. But notice if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a wonderful, wonderful promise. God can work all things in your life for good. Notice it doesn't say God can work some things or God can even work most things. It says that God can work all things for good. Now, that's just an amazing, wonderful promise. Even when you do something sinful, even when you're foolish, even, you know, God can work good out of that. Even when you have a horrible loss in your life, even when you go through some horrible situation, even when you're in something where you think, how could anything ever possibly good come from this? God is able to bring good from those bad situations. So God takes this bad situation that, Strong contention, this ministry split between Paul and Barnabas, he brings something good. Now there's two missionary groups going to two different places instead of one. We're told that Barnabas and Mark, they leave from Antioch and they go down to Cyprus. That's actually where Mark was from and Barnabas was from. And they do ministry there, but Luke doesn't give us the details of what happens with their ministry. Church history says the ministry there flourishes and it branches out to Africa. And so, you know, they were able to be used by God in a great way. And then we're told that Silas and, and Paul join together and they go north, the opposite direction, northwest, to the region of Cilicia. And as we're going to see as we continue through this missionary journey, God uses them in great ways as well. So Luke chooses to record Paul and Silas' journey. He doesn't record Mark and Barnabas. So that's the one that we're going to be focusing on, what we'll be looking at in the next uh, several weeks as we see what God does in this second missionary journey. Now, it's interesting because we already knew Mark, we already knew Barnabas, we already knew Paul, 
But Silas is now on the scene. And actually, Silas came on the scene last chapter. You might have not noted him. We didn't spend much time with him. But remember, the Jerusalem Council, they made this decision that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, not faith plus works of the law. And they said, we're going to send a couple guys with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with a letter to tell those in Antioch. One of the guys that they sent was Silas. We're also told that when Silas gets there, he's prophesying over the church there. So he was also someone who was gifted with prophecy. He was a great godly man that they chose to send up there. And so he's there already because they sent him there. And Paul decides, you know what, here's a guy that I'm going to take with me to join me as we go on this missionary journey. And so now it's Paul and Silas, no longer Paul and Barnabas, and they're starting this second missionary journey. And let's see what transpires. Chapter Then they came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were there at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And they went through the cities and delivered to them the decrees to keep which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So Paul and Silas, they come to Derby where there was great success, if you remember, on the first missionary journey, and they get there, and they get to encourage the believers that were there, and then they leave Derby and they go to Lystra. Now, I find it interesting, because if you remember, Lystra on the first missionary journey has had some serious issues. It was Lystra that they come, and the people in Lystra wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods, and they said, you know, Barnabas uh, was Zeus, and Paul was Hermes, and, you know, they're about to sacrifice to him, and, you know, they're tearing their clothes and saying, what are you guys doing? Don't do this. Then the Jewish religious leaders come there and they convince the people to stone Paul. They think they kill him. They drag him out of the city. So he had a pretty bad experience there in Lystra. But even in the midst of all of that persecution, we see that a church was established. People got saved and they were, you know, uh, following the Lord. And so they get to come back to this place and they get to encourage uh, the disciples. And, And there's an important person that they meet now in Lystra. We're told that they meet this guy named Timothy. Now, this is the same Timothy that Paul writes First and Second Timothy 2, and we're told a couple of things about Timothy. First, that he was well spoken of by the believers there in Lystra, and that's always a wonderful thing to have, that people are saying, hey, we don't have bad things to say about Timothy. He's a godly guy. But we're also told something else about Timothy that's important to note. His mom was Jewish. And his father was an unbelieving Greek. So his mom was actually not just Jewish, but she was a believer in Jesus and Jewish. And his father was an unbelieving Greek. Well, Paul, he's impressed with Timothy. And he wants to take Timothy on this journey with he and Silas. But notice he asked Timothy and Timothy agrees to do something before they leave on this journey. He says, Timothy, you know what? You need to get circumcised. And we're told the reason that Paul did this was for the Jews in that region because they all knew Timothy's father was a Greek. Now, under Jewish law, Timothy was a Jew because his mom was a Jew, so that was fine. But the problem was he was uncircumcised, which made him ultimately an apostate Jew. It would have been a huge problem among the Jews that Timothy was coming with an unbelieving Greek father and he wasn't circumcised. Not being circumcised would have been a big barrier for Timothy to minister to Jews. Paul recognized that, and he says, Timothy, 
I want you to come with me, but we're going to be seeking not only to reach Gentiles, but Jews, and you not being circumcised is going to be a huge stumbling block for these Jews, and it's going to make it really hard for you to reach out and minister to them. Will you consider getting circumcised in order to reach those people? I think it's important to note Timothy wasn't circumcised in order to be saved. We already looked at this last week. Salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, not faith plus circumcision in the works of the law that was clearly laid out. Timothy made a choice. He chose to get circumcised because he wanted to reach a group of people that he wouldn't be able to very well if he didn't. Timothy ultimately followed the the philosophy of ministry that we see from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is a great philosophy of ministry, and I want to read what he says For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all men, that I might be able, that by all means save some. Paul's ministry philosophy was basically, I'm willing to personally sacrifice whatever I have to for the kingdom of God, whatever I have to, to reach people with the gospel. To the Jews, I become a Jew so I can win Jews. To those under the law, I become like those under the law so I can win them. This is the Uh, mindset that Timothy has. I'm going to become like those under the law and get myself circumcised. Why? So I can reach them, so I can minister to them, so I can be effective in sharing the gospel with them. Timothy didn't have to do this. He could have said, you know, sorry, Paul, I would have loved to have gone with you, but I'm not getting circumcised. I'm just going to stay here in Lystra. Almost everybody here is Gentile. They could care less if I'm circumcised. I can continue ministering here. I'm already well spoken of among the church here. This is where I'm going to do my ministry. And he could have done that, and that could have been fine. But you know what? He ultimately said, I want to go and reach this people group that I know, unless I make a personal sacrifice, I'm not going to be very effective in doing. And so I'm willing to sacrifice and be circumcised in order to reach them, in order for the kingdom of God to spread. So Timothy chose to make this big sacrifice for the kingdom of God, which brings us to the third point that I want to make this morning. We need to be willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. You and I need to be willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. You know, if you want to see God's kingdom grow and people get saved, it always involves personal sacrifice. You know, I think of myself and Jenny, and the reality is we had to sacrifice our culture. We had to sacrifice family. We had to sacrifice friends. We had to sacrifice financial security. We had to sacrifice a lot of things to travel to Scotland and minister, and then to go to Georgia and minister, and then to come here and minister. And the reality is it's worth it. Because you're doing it ultimately for the kingdom of God, and and we love you here. We want to see God do a great work here in Pasadena, but it comes with sacrifice. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite pastors and commentators, says this, great ministry doesn't happen without great personal sacrifice. I'm sure all of us would love to say, Lord, we want you to do great ministry through us. Oh, it would be so wonderful if God would use me this way or that way. And we look at Paul, and we look at Peter, and we look at these guys that God did great things through. But 
when it comes to the rubber meeting the road and it's like, all right, I'm going to do that, but it's going to cause some personal sacrifice in your life. Oh, well, if that's what it's going to take, then never mind. You know, I like to be used greatly as long as there's no sacrifice that I have to make in order to be used greatly. But they go hand in hand. You want to be used great by God? You always see it in the scripture. There's a great personal sacrifice that comes from those who are willing to do that. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to personally sacrifice for that to happen? Or maybe a better question is, what aren't you willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom? What would you not sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of reaching people who are lost? You know, you can tell how valuable something is to someone by what they're willing to sacrifice for it. I think a great example of that we see right now with the Olympics. And you see what athletes are willing to sacrifice in order for the goal of competing for gold, for being the best in the world. While we're sleeping in our beds, they're up early in the morning and they're working out and they're doing all this stuff where we're lounging around while we get to eat things that taste really good like Whataburger and, you know, we go and we have Bluebell and I know I love drinking Dr. Pepper. You know, they don't eat that kind of stuff. I mean, they're feeding their body healthy, most likely not so good tasting things. Why? Because they want to be the best athlete possible. They're willing to make those sacrifices for the goal of being able to compete to be the best in the world in whatever they're in. You see, you can tell how valuable something is to someone by what they're willing to sacrifice for it. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do we value making an impact in the kingdom of God enough that we're willing to personally sacrifice for it? If there are things in our life where you can just say right now, there's no way I would sacrifice that or I wouldn't sacrifice this, then we need to start praying and saying, Lord, change my heart. Bring me to a place where I can honestly and sincerely say, I am willing to sacrifice whatever it is that you want me to for your kingdom. Remember in Jesus' prayer? Pray, the kingdom of God come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my kingdom come and my will be done. Our heart shouldn't be for us and our will, it should be for God and his. And we should demonstrate that in our willingness to sacrifice for the Lord. So first... God uses sinful people to do his ministry. Second, God can bring good out of bad situations. And third, we need to be willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. Well, let's see what happens next here on this missionary journey. 16, starting in verse 6, says this. Now, when they had gone through uh, Figria and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, They traveled to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, one of the most discouraging words in the English language, is the word no. No one likes to hear the word no. Any of you who parents know kids hate to hear the word no. I tell Scarlett and Eden no all the time, and not once have they responded with a big smile on their face and say, thanks for telling me no, Dad. It's always this negative word that they really don't want to hear, and we don't like it. Probably the the worst time in someone's life, and I hope it hasn't happened to anyone, to hear the word no would be something like this. There's a 
man who was bold and went to the Houston Rockets game, and he goes to propose to the woman that he loves. And let me say, if you're going to propose to a woman in front of thousands of people, make sure you know she's going to say yes. But he does this, and at first it looks, oh, she's so happy and blessed, and it's unfortunately not going to end very well for him. In front of thousands of people, she says, no, I can't do this, and she's going to walk away. And Man, this must have been brutal. You know, I mean, you don't want to hear the word no, and it doesn't get any easier in the Christian life. You know, we hate it in the world, but we don't like it when it comes to our relationship with God either. Because, you know, when we pray and we ask God for things, there are basically three answers he gives us. The first answer we love, yes, you can have what you ask for. Thank you, God, this is so great. The second answer is wait. Now, we don't like to wait because we're impatient, but it's still hope that it might be yes. So wait, and then maybe we'll get it. So, you know, we kind of still hope, but then there's no. And we don't like it. We don't want to hear no. We don't want God to deny the things that we are desiring and asking for. We don't like to be told no, not even from God. Well, in the verses I just read, God tells Paul and Silas and Timothy no twice. After ministering in Lystra in the surrounding region, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, you know what? They want to go to Asia Minor. They want to head towards Ephesus. That's where they want to start reaching out with the gospel. And we're told the Holy Spirit hinders them and says, no, you're not going that way. Okay, well, we won't go that way. Fine. So they, they respond. And then they head north. Uh, and, you know, they, they start to, to head up towards Bithynia. But the Spirit of God once again says no and keeps them from going that direction. So twice they're told no, and I want you to recognize what they're being told no to. It's not like, hey, no, don't do that sinful thing or no this. He's saying, no, don't go to this place and preach the gospel. No, don't go to this place and do ministry. You see, the Holy Spirit had a very specific place that he wanted Paul, Silas, and Timothy to go. He had a specific area that he wanted them to reach, and he was seeking to direct them through closing these doors on the areas that they thought, well, let's just go here towards Ephesus. No, okay, well, let's go up towards Bithynia. No, I don't want you to go to either of those places. Now, we're not told exactly how the Holy Spirit said no. It may have been through a word of prophecy. It may have been through uh, some scripture that they read. It could have been an inward conviction, a lack of peace, circumstances. We don't know what was it that ultimately made it clear that this was no, but one way or another, they recognized the message that God was saying was no. Now, the important thing I want you to note here is how Paul, Silas, and Timothy respond when God tells them no. When they're told no, They accept it, and they are obedient to it, and they stop where they were planning on going, and they change directions to focus where God has them. You know, I think something important for us to understand is that God often directs us through opening doors and through closing doors. You know, we see with the Holy Spirit closing the door twice on Paul and Silas, I would say that God, in my experience, often closes doors to guide us just as much as he opens doors to guide us. And I bring that up because I think so often we're overly focused on open doors. Well, I just want to find the open door, and I'm sure that's where God wants me. But God also is wanting to show and direct through shutting doors, saying, this is not the way I want you to go. This is not what I want you to do. And so it's not just an opening of a door that God directs us. It's also the closing of doors as well. You know, when I was doing my two-year internship with Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria, 
one of my roles was to lead outreaches all over Europe, and I did many of them. And each outreach I led, one of my good friends, Andrew, went with me from the first one to the last one. And we went to Scotland together, and it was there in Scotland I felt the Lord burdening my heart to go back. And we got back to Austria. I shared my heart with him, and he's like, man, I'm going with you. This is going to be great. We're going to partner together. And so he had a heart to be with me and to want to go. And the Lord started opening doors for me, but yet he was closing doors for Andrew. Right away, I get a visa. It takes usually six months. I got mine in a day. He sends his application, and it got rejected completely. I said, nope, you can't come. Seems to be a pretty closed door, pretty open door. I wasn't even telling people to support me. I didn't even ask for it yet. And people were responding to me, not even knowing I was interested in Scotland, saying, we want to support you to go to Scotland. He wrote letters asking for support, and no one responded with saying, we're going to support you. And so the Lord was clearly opening doors for me, and we both agreed, man, the Lord's opening doors. He definitely wants us in Scotland, clearly me. But, you know, when the doors were closing on him, we weren't concluding, well, the Lord doesn't want you in Scotland. We did what many people do when it comes to doors that are closed that we want to see open. I'm sure you have experienced this. I know I have done this. We did this then. We tried to kick those doors down, and it didn't work. Kind of like my little video here. They're going to keep kicking, but it's not going to help. And, you know, after a while, it was clear from what the Lord was doing that that God didn't want us to try to kick the doors down. He was closing it for a reason. Andrew was not supposed to come with me. And finally, he came to that realization. He just said, you know what? Lord, what do you want? If you're not going to send me to Scotland, what do you want? And God clearly said, I want you to do another semester here as an intern. He does that. A new girl comes. They fall in love. They get married. They go back, uh, and they have a ministry uh, in the States now. And, you know, the Lord had something different, something better. He was closing that door to help guide Andrew to that. And this is something I think is so important for us. When the doors close, God says no. We just need to accept it. We need to obey it. And we need to be careful not to try to kick those doors down so we can have what we want and just trust, hey, Lord, you know what's best. Which brings us to the fourth point I want to make this morning. When God says no, we should respond with acceptance and obedience, trusting he knows best. And I think that last part is so important. When God closes doors, when he says no, we need to respond with acceptance and obedience, trusting he knows best. You know, when God tells you no, he's telling you no for a reason. And you've got to trust that he knows better than you, that, that he has your best interests in mind. And usually the two reasons that God says no is one for direction, like we see here with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. No, 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 not there. I'm directing you somewhere else. But I think more commonly, God closes doors for protection. Do not do this because I want to protect you. Yes, there's this relationship that you really want to get involved in. And, oh, you think that guy is so handsome. He's not a believer. No, don't go into that relationship. Oh, or there's this thing that, that I want to do so much. And you know, wait, wait a second. No, this is going to draw you into sin. And God often is saying no to protect us because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows how weak our flesh is. And he will close doors not only to direct us, but also he'll close doors to protect us. And so this missionary team, God closes this door to protect them. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do you trust God enough that when he closes the doors and says no, you accept it, obey it, even when you don't know why? And that's the struggle for us. All right, Lord, if you can convince me and show me why this door is closed, I won't keep trying to kick it down. 
Sometimes God just says, you know what? I'm not going to explain it to you. You probably won't even get it if I tried. Just trust me. I've closed it for a reason. Quit trying to kick it down. You're just going to hurt yourself. Just don't go down that road. Just trust me even when you don't know why. Do we trust that God knows what's best for us? When he closes doors, it's to protect us or to direct us because he knows what is best for us. Right before God called Jenny and I here to Pasadena, he really just made it clear that he was preparing us, get ready to plant another church. And the first thought that came to our mind was, you're going to send us back to Europe. We're dual citizens. We still have a support base. Logically, practically, it made plenty of sense to us. That's where we're going. And we started thinking that way. We started pursuing those things. And all of a sudden, the Lord just starts closing those doors. Now, we learned. We got more mature, not to start kicking them down. You know, we realized, okay, Lord, you're closing this. This is not where you have us. Where do you have us? And then he opens this door, which we definitely did not expect here to Pasadena. But we also recognize, Lord, when you open a door, we want to be faithful to go and to follow. And we recognize he does it. He knows what's best. He knows where he wants us, and he directs us that way. Well, God tells his missionary team no twice. He keeps them from going to the wrong place. Well, now he's going to make the direction clear. In verse 9, we're told, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're in Troas, and God makes the direction clear. He gives a vision to Paul. There's a guy in Macedonia, and he's calling out, please come here to Macedonia and help us. We need the gospel. We need your help. And notice the response. They go there immediately. Now, I think it's interesting to note that Paul The ministry he had was the continent of Asia Minor, and God ultimately calls him now to the continent of Europe. And this is the first time that any missionary endeavor moves into Europe. And we're starting to see the wisdom and greatness of God's plan unfold. Well, well, why did you close the door? I mean, these are two great places. They need the gospel, don't they? And God says, oh, I've closed the door because I don't just want you ministering in that region. I'm going to take you and give you a whole continent. I'm going to take you to Europe. I'm going to have you spread the gospel there. God's plan is always better than ours. We just need to trust and follow him. Verse 10. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, this is interesting. They just had two closed doors. They're, oh, we're going here. Nope. Okay, we're going here. Nope. Now, all of a sudden, the door opens. And notice they're ready. They're immediately willing to follow. And I I find personally, when God closes doors, I'm a little more reluctant to go when he's opening them. You know, you just close the door on me. Maybe it's bitterness. I don't know. But I have found personally that sometimes, you know, now the door's open and it's like, well, you didn't let me go there. And now you're expecting me to do this. They immediately went through it. They knew, all right, Lord, you're leading us here. We're ready to go. We're not going to waste time. We're just going to walk through it. You know, I remember in high school, my sister had a friend that was a very strong feminist and you know we had just gone out somewhere and we got back to my uh, house and you know I was taught you know what when there's girls there you open the door so I open up the front door and my sister and friends and stuff they're walking through and this girl just stops and she's just staring I'm holding the door you're gonna come in she says I don't need a man to open the door for me okay so I walk in I close the door and I lock it Uh, and she's standing there (laughs) And she starts knocking and says, open the door. And I said, why? You don't need a man to open the door for you. But, you know, when we, when the Lord opens the door, don't be like that. He doesn't want us to stand there and stare. 
He says, go, I've opened it for a purpose. Walk through the door and do what I've called you to do. You know, George Truitt, a, a great Baptist preacher, said, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement. It's one thing to see the doors open. It's something very different to walk through it. And I think that's the challenge. Oftentimes we know, oh, this is where God's guiding. This is where God's directing. But we're not willing to go. We're not willing to walk through it. We're not willing to obey. And that's the real challenge. And something I think is great that we see from these guys is right when that door opens, they're willing to pursue it immediately and do what God has called them to do. And I want to draw your attention to a very important word here in verse 10, a small word that you might miss. It's the word we. Luke says, we sought to come to Macedonia. Now, notice the shift. Verse 8, it says, they came down to Troas, and now we have we, and notice who the author is, Luke. He's talking about they, 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 and now it's we, because this is the point in time where Luke joins the missionary team. He's in Macedonia. He joins this missionary team. Now he's a part of it with Paul and Silas and Timothy, and now Luke as well. He no longer speaks in the third person, but the first person because he's joined this. And perhaps Luke is even Paul's personal physician because we know that Luke was a doctor. So here we see another reason why they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia Minor, why they're forbidden to go to Bithynia. God not only wanted them in Europe, he wanted them to connect with Luke. And think of the significance of that, because if they don't meet Luke, guess what we don't have? We don't have the book that we're studying right now that Luke wrote. We also don't have the Gospel of Luke, which he wrote. And I mentioned in uh, the Gospel of Luke that when you take the amount of words written by Luke, it's actually the most in the entire New Testament. Paul wrote more books of the Bible. Luke actually wrote more content in the Bible because Luke and Acts are so large. And so we would have actually the, the largest Gospel New Testament writer taken out if we didn't have Luke. And so I'm sure Paul had no idea of the greatness in God's purpose when God said, no, well, why not? We want to go there. Well, fine. We'll go up here. No. What's, what's going on, God? We just have a heart to reach people with the gospel. Trust me. I have a vision. I have a plan. I have a direction for you that's bigger than you can comprehend and imagine. And they're just willing to follow. And Lord does so many amazing things because of it. When God says no, he knows what he's doing. We need to respond by accepting it and obeying it. So first, God uses sinful people to do his ministry. Second, God can bring good out of bad situations. Third, we need to be willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. Fourth, when God says no, we should respond with acceptance and obedience. Let's see what happens next. Verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course uh, to Samothrace, and next came to uh, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she had she and her household were baptized. She begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So this ministry team, now including Luke, leaves Troas and they come to Philippi, uh, which, as you can see from the map, is in the region of Macedonia. And on the Sabbath, they go to the riverside 
because there are people there customarily who pray. Now, notice that every time that Paul goes to a new city, he's always been going to the synagogue. But now he's going out to the river. Why? Because there is no synagogue there in Philippi. And that reveals something to us. Under Jewish law, if there were 10 men in a city, you had to be 10 or more, you'd have to build a synagogue. So it shows that there were less than 10 Jewish men there in Philippi. There wasn't much of a Jewish presence there. But there were some women who were out praying at the river. And so they go out to the river, and they meet a woman by the name of Lydia. She sold purple, uh, and in that culture, she probably was a wealthy woman. This was something that she did, and we're told that she worshipped God. And we're no- notice something that we're told here. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. I think this is something that is so key for us to understand. Paul comes out, he shares the gospel, but notice we're specifically told the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to heed the things shared by Paul. And this is something that we really need to note because it's something that Jesus shares with us in John 6, 44. It says, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. We need to recognize the gospel is spiritual. It's not just a matter of articulating it properly that's going to get someone saved. The Spirit of God has to be working in someone's heart, has to be drawing someone, has to be preparing someone. And you know what? You could say it just perfectly and they could reject it and you could feel so, oh man, I just screwed it up. No, the Spirit of God has to be drawing and working in someone's life before they're going to be able, willing, and ready to accept the gospel. We see this happen in Lydia. God had to prepare her heart. And I share this because we're going to be going out Saturday to preach the gospel. There are many times you get opportunities with family and friends and neighbors and coworkers that you want to share the gospel with. But before you do that, I want to encourage you, be in prayer specifically that the Holy Spirit would move in the individual's heart, which brings us to our fifth point. We need to ask God to open the hearts of the people we want to accept the gospel. Before you share the gospel, pray, God, will you open their heart? Will you prepare them for this message? Will you help them to be receptive and open to the truth of who you are and what you've done for them? Recognize there's a spiritual battle. Understand Satan wants to keep them bound in sin and darkness. He does not want them to come to know the truth. The Spirit of God has to help for this process to work. And so we need to come and battle in prayer before we even go out with the message. And so this is a very important part of gospel sharing. Pray before you go. That's why every time we go out, what do we do first? We get together and we pray. One of the things we're specifically praying for are the people we're going to encounter, that God would prepare their heart, that God would soften their heart, that God would help them be receptive to the wonderful news of the gospel. So in these verses, we have seen five important things for us to note, for us to hopefully apply to our lives. God uses sinful people to do his ministry. God can bring good out of bad situations. We need to be willing to personally sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. When God says no, we should respond with acceptance and obedience, and we need to ask God to open the hearts of the people we want to accept the gospel. 
You know, there are two people in our church who have personally sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of God. They've gone to another culture with the purpose of reaching people with the gospel. And those two people are Savannah, who's in Kenya, Robert, now uh, who's in Guatemala. And I want to just close this morning. I felt it, it flowed well with what we've just looked at, this wonderful example here in the second uh, missionary journey. We see two from our church following that example out there, reaching people with the gospel. And I want to close this morning praying for them. I've asked them for some prayer requests. I'm going to throw them up here on the screen. I'm going to read them first, but I'm putting them on the screen because if you're anything like me, you hear that and you think, oh, I want to pray that. And then five minutes later, you forget what it was said. So here's what we can pray, uh, but I'm going to read what they say. uh, And then we're just going to take some time. Anyone who wants to pray, uh, I encourage you to do it. But Robert, uh, he asked that we would pray for him to have perseverance, wisdom, and discernment, um, that he would get closer to the heart of Jesus. And they said that everyone in the school there would just be more genuine, more open, uh, and that God would work through that. And so uh, let's specifically be praying for Robert in those areas. Uh, Savannah says right now uh, they have a break, a term break, so teenagers are all available. They're doing a lot of stuff with the teenagers right now, uh, and she wants prayer that they would be intentional with this time uh, and be able to encourage the teens towards Christ and even specifically who God wants them to spend more time with, and so that, that God would just direct them in that. Uh, some of the schools near her have uh, burnt down. Even students have burned them down. Uh, there have actually been some students who, through that, burned and died in the fire, some who uh, were injured. And so it's just kind of a little bit of chaotic around them. Uh, and they're trying to reach out to people who have been uh, injured and just things that are going on. And so just uh, be praying for that. Uh, Savannah's been trying to find a sponsor for one of the high school boys. His name is David. Uh, she says he's always coming to church. He's very respectful, loves Jesus. Uh, and they're, you know, you're lucky if you get to go to high school. Uh, to sponsor him is $50 a month. Uh, his family has seven siblings uh, with him, so he's the eighth. Uh, they can't afford to send him, uh, and so she's looking for uh, people to be able to sponsor. That doesn't just pay for uh, their schooling. It also gives them food. It also gives them some medical stuff, um, but um, we can pray for that, and if the Lord puts it on your heart, um, that's something that you can contact me about as well. Uh, Alex, he's in third grade. Uh, he ran away a month ago, and they haven't been able to find him. Uh, Uh, And so, you know, they want prayer for just his well-being and being able to find him and get him back. Uh, And then just God's blessing and guidance over the ministries there. And and anything else that's on your heart to lift them up. These are just some specific things right now that's happening that we can pray. Uh, So let's just take some time. Uh, If you want to pray, I encourage you to do so. Uh, And after some time, I'll close this in prayer. But let's just focus on lifting up Savannah and Robert and the ministries that they're doing and ask the Lord to bless them.